Too many Westerns growing up. Well, open the word with me to Acts chapter 2. Soon, your Bible will flop open to Acts chapter 2. You just set it down on its spine, it will open by itself to Acts chapter 2. You know, it bears repeating that some, some of us come to the Bible and we, we don't quite understand what it is that we're engaging when we come to the Bible. It's just kind of the culture that we live in. So there's this tendency to think that the Bible is a bunch of collected stories. Maybe there's kind of like a moral to the stories. So we, we learn principles by reading about a person's life. And then we apply those principles to our lives. Kind of the moral of this guy's story is this. And the moral of this guy's story is that. And we apply those things. Or even to think that the Bible is a collection of, of wise proverbs and just sayings that we repeat. You know, God helps those who help themselves kind of a thing. And, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. Um, but we, we sometimes don't quite realize what's going on when you just open the pages of the Bible up. Well, truly, one thing is going on from Genesis to Revelation. One thing is happening. A true story is unfolding about God restoring humanity to himself. That's the one thing that's happening in all the Bible. So no matter what page you open to, your question should be, how is this about that? Right? And so... The, the word that packages that together, we call it the gospel. The gospel is the story of God restoring man to himself. Now, if you're a Christian, you have this mandate upon your life. You were saved in order to be restored to God, and then you were immediately given a mandate to proclaim that gospel into the world. And you proclaim it in a number of ways. I think there's proclamation that takes place by the manner of life in which we live. But as we said in the last couple of weeks, looking at Peter preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2, at some point, your manner of life is insufficient. Because the conclusion of somebody watching the manner of your life could be that you're just a nice person. You're, a, you're not a jerk like some of the other people I know. You fit in a category of wonderful people, great human being. But that's not an explanation of the gospel. At some point, you, not just preachers, you are called upon to proclaim the gospel. You, as a Christian, have a mandate to explain to someone the gospel. So if I put you on the spot and I called you up here and I said, hey, come stand up here and just give us the basic points of the gospel. What would you make sure that you cover with someone? Now you, you may feel on the spot if I were to do that to you this morning, but you're on the spot every day as you engage people. And at some point, God creates an opportunity for the gospel to be given to that person. Listen, please don't become one of those Christians that all you can do is live your life toward people, care for them, live a noble, God-glorifying life in front of them, and then when it comes time for content, you have to bring them to someone else. That's not wrong for you to bring them to somebody else, but it's, it's not always God's intention that you bring them to anybody else. 
at some point you have to share the gospel with them. So, you know, what's, what makes up the gospel? Well, there's a lot of skeletons out there that people would say, make sure you cover this, 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 and this. I think one that's easy to remember, a fellow named Greg Gilbert wrote a book a number of years ago called What is the Gospel? And he created these little categories that I, I think do a good job of explaining what are you and I sharing when we share the gospel. And the categories were this, God, man, Christ, response. Right? That would be if you're sharing the gospel, as you are called to, and you're going to be sharing accurately about God and who he is, accurately about man, as the Bible describes him, accurately about Christ, and accurately about how to respond to those. So when we come to Acts chapter 2, we, we find all this in Acts chapter 2. Everything of the gospel is there in this passage, right? We've been looking through the preaching that took place here. Look at some, some elements here quickly. Where is God in this? Well, as Peter preaches, he talks about Jesus of Nazareth in verse 22. Peter went through this last week. Was a man attested to you by God. God bore witness about who Christ is. Listen, to some degree, it doesn't matter who you and I say Jesus Christ is. God has already said who he is. And at the end of the day, you don't want to be arguing with God. Right? God has said something. God who existed before you and I, who's been eternal, who owns everything, has power over everything, has attested to who Jesus Christ is. So God has said something about Christ. We read in Acts chapter 2 about this plan of God, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And we're going to encounter that again in Acts chapter 4. What we have here in Acts 2 is God has had a plan. God has always had this gospel plan to restore man to himself. So when you're sharing the gospel, you're explaining that this, this is God's plan to bring men back to himself. And he does that. Through Christ. Well, where's man in this passage? Well, if you, if you look at who man is in, in Acts chapter 2, man is a villain. Right? You remember what was said? Peter says, you, pointing to humanity, you crucified the Lord of glory. You, you are murderers. Who is man in this? Man is guilty in this passage. Man is not good in this passage. Man is guilty in this passage. And since the whole scheme of God is in Acts chapter 2, man is in need. If God did such incredible things to restore man to himself, well, then it must mean that man needs to be restored to God. So the revelation of man is in Acts chapter 2. God, man, Christ is in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preached on this person of Christ who's presented to us and who he is throughout all of Scripture, the Messiah who has fulfilled all that God has set forth in righteousness has been fulfilled by this one, this Christ. And then I think an important thing also in this passage is response. How does one respond to hearing that? What's, what's the biblical normal, since we're shopping for a new normal here, What's the normal response to hearing this? Now, if you go back in your own story, I can go back in my own life, and as far back as, as I can remember, I had a concept of God in my life. I believed that there was a God. I wasn't an atheist. I believed in a higher power. I believed in a God who was benevolent and was good and was caring, a God you could pray to. I went and brought my problems to God on occasion. 
So I had a concept of God. I had a concept of man. I think if you'd asked me at the core of man's existence, I would have said, well, he's, man's pretty good, does some bad things, but men are pretty good. Uh, I would have been misinformed about man. I would not have been aware of my need for God. I would not have been aware of the vitalness of God's plan for me personally. I, I would not have understood that. Uh, Christ, I, I was familiar. I grew up in going to church. I knew the Christmas story. I knew the Easter story. I knew the life that Jesus lived. I knew children's stories about Jesus interacting with people and things that he did. So God, man, Christ, I had some information on. Not always accurate, but some information. Response. Keith, how were you responding to what you knew? Well, up until 1979, my response was a damning response. I got saved in 1979, and up until that moment, my response to what I knew would have landed me in judgment and in hell had I died before 1979. So responding to what you know is a pretty important thing. It's a vitally important thing for you as a Christian. Now, I can remember this because, you know, okay, well, so what's a normal response? Well, I can remember when I got saved as a teenager, I had relatives who responded to my response. I had relatives who had been around me, and all of a sudden, Keith's changed. He's about different stuff. He's, he's not going after the same things that he used to go after, and his attitude is a little bit different. And what's this reading the Bible all the time? And why does he all of a sudden want to go to the, these weird church meetings? And, you know, it was kind of this, dude, you need to settle down a little bit here. What, what, what's going on with you? And one relative I remember explaining, oh, um, you know, I remember being your age. I went through that as a teenager too. Like it was a phase, you know. So you're going through, you're going through a phase. And so the obvious implication was I was once like that. And then I'd back away and look at the life now and go, okay, so apparently normal doesn't sustain this because you don't look this way anymore. You're, you're about something else. Your passions are somewhere else. You know, a Bible can't be found. Pursuing God doesn't really show up much in your life either. So whatever I'm going through, it's just a phase. You'll kind of outgrow it. And then there were people in the, the denomination that I was a part of. When I looked around, whatever I was going through wasn't really normal. My experience wasn't normal because they kind of looked like religion on a sedative you know, it's like they, they, there wasn't a lot of zeal, there wasn't a lot of passion, there, oh, heck, there wasn't even a lot of interest going on in their world. They kind of went through the motions, they did some things week in and week out and attended and did and attended and did. But, you know, apart from that meeting, they, they didn't bleed any kind of blood about Christianity. Their conversation wasn't about God. Their pursuit outside of that meeting wasn't about God. So if I, I'm looking at whatever's happened to me and looking into their lives and wondering, it, it, is this normal or is that normal? Right? When, you, when you come into being a Christian, what, what's it supposed to look like? And maybe you would do well to ask yourself that question. When you, quote, became a Christian, what does that, what does that look like? What does that mean? What's normal for someone to become a Christian? Well, Acts is very helpful for us in, in reeling us in toward God's normal. What does God say is normal? Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is not in your outline, 
says, we're studying the book of Acts, you remember, because it is the authoritative statement as to what the Christian church is, what Christianity is, and what it really means to be a Christian. When I came to know Christ as a teenager, all of a sudden I had some different ideas about what it meant to be a Christian than those around me were at odds with that. Was I right or was I wrong? Were they right? Are you right? Listen, none of us own the right to declare whether or not my way is right. I don't have the right this morning to stand in front of you as a Christian minister and tell you my way is the right way. I only have the right to tell you what God's way says. And so when we open up Acts chapter 2 here, we're going to get introduced to what's, what's the normal response to this gospel that's depicted on these pages. Look here with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter's just concluded preaching the gospel to this crowd on the streets of Jerusalem. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do, right? What do we do? How do we respond to what we've just heard? We, we know we must respond, but how? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day By day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, thank you for your word, which remains the standard of truth for our lives. Lord, thank you that that we don't get to distort what normal is supposed to be like. For what has become normal for us may be so different than what you ever intended normal to be. So, Lord, on these pages today, we see a normal conversion taking place before our eyes. God, inform our souls as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Something takes place in these lives, an amazing, radical, and this informs my prayers lately, it really does, as I'm just meditating on this. A group of people showed up one day to walk in the streets of Jerusalem, not for a meeting, not to attend a prayer service or an evangelical event, a New Testament beginning. They just were in the street 
when the work of God spilled out in front of them and the power of God and the preaching of the word of God captured them and 3,000 of them had eternity changed. And then not just those 3,000, but their lives would reverberate into thousands and thousands of lives were changed on that day. Something amazing took place. In an instant, what, what the Bible theologically would refer to as conversion took place. And in, in one moment, a death occurred and a life occurred. Because right? the Bible describes our conversion as, as both death and life. You will receive the life of the Holy Spirit, but something dies as we are coming to Christ. Something about us dies, and we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. But I, I want to perform a bit of an autopsy on this moment of conversion in these people's lives, this moment of responsiveness, right? There's lots of cool shows out there now that do autopsies. When I was growing up, I would just had to refer to Quincy. You know? How many of you guys watch Quincy? All right, you with me? Remember Quincy, you know, he kind of had that Quincy kind of look about him. And he did autopsies, right? He cut people open and he found out why did this guy die, what was inside him. Now they got these CSI shows that, I mean, Quincy, Quincy couldn't even get hired by these people. I mean, so, but now you know everything about this person's life. You just cut them open, take some tests, and you look at what was happening, right? We're going to do an autopsy on this Acts 2 group of 3,000 people that something's happened to them. And we're going to cut them open, have a look at this autopsy. Now, let me, let me be careful in, in doing this. A word of, of caution. Right? I guess if you're going to cut people open, you've got to be cautious, right? You don't want to nick the wrong nerve when you're doing this. We're going to look at things that clearly are in this passage. I'm not going to be making any of it up. It's just there. But when you talk about conversion and you talk about the gospel, you have to be careful when you begin to bring in our observations of human activity. And we don't, don't kind of nick the nerve of justification by faith. Right? What the Bible teaches about our salvation is we are saved, we are made right with God by receiving the grace of God by faith. And that grace of God is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only saving grace that there is. There's grace all over the place. The only saving grace is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to respond to that. But we don't, we don't want to distort the gospel and nick the nerve of justification by faith by making our activity supersede God's activity in this. Right, I don't know if I put this passage in your outline, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Right? God prepared beforehand responsiveness to the gospel. God, God gets the glory even for that. But salvation and conversion doesn't result from our work. Right? Salvation, the gospel, is good news to be received it is not good works to be achieved. So as we look at these things, be careful what you do with them. 
that you don't make them rungs on a ladder of performance in order to become saved. No, no, no. God prepared works for us once we were saved by his grace. So there is the work of God that saves us and then the ongoing outworking of that. You don't, you don't flip this one over here. Say, here's some work that you and I have to perform so that we'll be justified with God. No, the justification happens first, completely accepted in the beloved because of Christ. But then there's responsiveness in us. There's, there's life in us. There's activity in us. And we would be wise to pay careful attention to that. So in our autopsy, let's look at the normal things that accompany conversion. First, autopsy trace as we pull these chemicals out of the person who's dead here is, is repentance. When they pleaded with Peter and said, what must we do? We have heard, what do we do now? Peter said, repent. First order of business for anyone turning to Christ is repent. The Bible calls on us to respond to God in repentance. Clinton Arnold says, repent became the central call of early Christian preaching. Repentance involves primarily a radical change in a person's central affections, his convictions, and life direction. Right? Can you hold on to that? A radical change in your convictions, in your affections, in, in the direction of your life. It signifies a recognition that one's life has been oriented around self and sinful pursuits and an embracing of God's will and priorities. I, I, I think, okay, this is, this is what we're discovering. We, we look at these folks' lives and there is this work of repentance that's in their hearts. I, I think it's possible for us to have a distorted view of what repentance is when we come into the kingdom of God. And I want to be fair to our experience that when I look at Clinton Arnold's definition here, I think it's a good, sound definition. I'm not sure if you and I went back to our moment of conversion, how much we'd be aware of all that being at work. But I think over time that begins to work out, our repentance was all of that taking time to unfold in our lives. And here, here would be a concern. Here would be a familiar evangelical meeting today. A message is preached. I, I watched this happen for years, attending uh, youth conferences. A message is preached. A significant portion of that message is spent living in the world of human beings' lives, living in the world of teenagers when he was at these conferences. And so what was being identified through a good bit of the message, and this is not wrong, but what was being identified was hurts, wounds, ways in which people have failed you, ways in which you're in touch with your brokenness. So God, man, Christ response, man was being put on display. Your experience coming from a divorced household or maybe you were abused. And, and so stories and testimonies and realities about those settings would be clearly depicted and so I'd watch youth in the audience absorbing that information and identifying with it and saying, yes, that's me. That's how I 
that's how I feel. That's how I felt. And, and so deep into their heart, something is being excavated. And a reality of need is right there on the surface. Hopefully in the meeting as well, the person and work of Jesus Christ was presented as that which restores us to God, forgives us of our sins. And at the end of the meeting, people were called upon to respond to what they heard. Reality. Some people who came forward in those meetings could be true today, here. Some people weren't responding to what Clinton Arnold just described. They weren't responding to a change of their affections toward God, of being the central feature of who they would be in life, new convictions and new life directions. They weren't responding to a sense of, I have lived my life independent of God. I have stolen the life that rightly belonged to God and I have made it my own and I am repenting now of having hijacked the gift of life God has given to me and made it about me. I'm repenting of that and I'm turning to God. That might be what some people respond to. But many times what they respond to is there's an opportunity and I'm hurting. I hurt. You described somebody who's hurting. I'm hurting. And so the call is that person saying, and you said there's a God out there that can make me not hurt. That's what I'm coming forward for. I want to stop hurting. I want the bleeding to stop. I want somehow to make sense out of my life. Now, listen, do you understand? You can come forward to get some form of wound healed and not embrace Jesus Christ as the one who died on your behalf to reconcile you to God. You could just be coming forward because your life hurts and you want God or somebody to make it stop. That's not a bad thing to be in touch with, a need for God to come do something in your life. But this is when you're proclaiming the gospel and you touch somebody and you know them and you say, hey, this is going on and that's going on and I know this hurt and this has been really bad and they're in tears and they're in front of you. Let me pray for you. There's consoling and care and comfort. Would you like me to pray for you? Yes, I'd like for you to pray for me. Don't misread that. That doesn't mean they want Jesus Christ to be Lord and save them. It might just mean I hurt all over. Would you like me to pray for you? Yes, please. Help me with the pain. Listen, Christian, love that person. Have compassion for that person. Care for that person. But realize, praying for their pain it's not the same as leading them to repentance, to turn their life over to God and find him as their new owner, master, and boss for the rest of their lives. So we need to be careful when we talk, the Bible begins with repent. What must we do? Well, you need to repent. You need to turn to God in a particular way. See, so in this moment of turning, the Bible describes this death and new life. Right, let me, I think repentance has got that death in mind. There's a death to something that takes place. When you become a Christian, something dies. Right? Listen to this in the scriptures. Romans chapter 6. This death that accompanies the new life. This is where I want to make sure we get this. Conversion is something that happens to you. Which is what makes Paul sound the way he does in these passages. 
when conversion took place in their lives, and you can hear it in their voice, all right, 3,000 got saved, maybe 10,000 were standing in the street that day. 5,000 scratched their heads, 2,000 walked away halfway through the message, just picked their baskets up and went about their business. But 3,000, all those whom the Lord our God calls to himself, 3,000 cried out God's work converting them on the inside made them feel like their arm was being twisted behind their back and they were, Uncle Peter, what, what do we do? We've got to respond to what you're saying. See, conversion was happening to them in this moment, which is why Paul says stuff like this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By by no means. How? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of Life. See, repentance was this expression of turning away from that which was dead. My former manner of life, the person I used to be, the reasons I got up in the morning, the things that motivated me in this world. I have died and my life is now hidden in Christ. That death is a turning away from that. That ceases. So when you have Christians who continue to pursue and desire and practice sin, the apostle Paul scratches his head from the get-go. Because he says, wait a minute. Wait, what what did we miss here? Step number one was repentance because of this death. You have been baptized into Christ. Wait, you're trying to ask me how do you continue in sin? Something died in you. What do you mean how you continue in sin? This thing happened to you. God did such a work in you. You tell me. It's a mystery to me. How would you continue to practice something that no longer lives in you the same way that it used to? The desire and the operation and the dominance and the mastery of sin no longer operates in you as a Christian the way it once did. Sin shall no longer be master over you because you get up early in the morning and do your devotions and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your darndest to pull this Christian life off. Is that why sin will no longer be master over you? Sin is no longer master over you because you were baptized into Christ's death, the one who was victorious over sin, the one who crushed sin and defeated it, the only one who ever could, no matter how many devotions you do in the morning. The reason why sin's operation in your life has changed is because of what Christ did on your behalf and then in your conversion, what he did to you. That's normal. That makes a difference in your life, doesn't it? Repent. Repent has that turning away component, that hostility. Listen, can you identify this this morning? Because I, I, I would really want you to be aware whether or not you have experienced normal repentance. Especially, I mean, young guys who grew up in church and familiar with this. 
you look back over what's taken place in your life. Have your, have your allegiances transferred? Have you, have you come to a place where there is hostility in you towards sin? No, listen, I know we're all tempted. There's sins that I give into, but I'm hostile toward them. They're my enemies. I'm ticked off by them. Well, being ticked off doesn't always mean I don't give in to them. I got that. But if, if you still got, you know, you're still part of that political party, if you're still part of that way of life, if that's still your home team, you, you got issues with repentance in your life. When you repented, that former manner of life became hostile to you and you became hostile to it. That's repentance. If you don't know anything about it, you're sitting here today and you're going, Keith, I have no idea what you're talking about. If I cut you open and I do an autopsy on your conversion and you don't find this there, then we have to raise the question, what was the cause of death? Was it you identifying with Christ? Or was it, yeah, that was a tough season of life for me. There's a lot going on. A lot of difficulty. I just needed some kind of help to help me get through. Maybe you didn't turn to Christ. Maybe you just appealed for some help. Maybe you really don't know what it is to biblically repent and turn to God. All right, we keep looking. Trace elements. Peter's instructions are repent and believe. Right? Repent and be baptized. There's this belief element throughout all this. And you can see the belief awakening in their hearts. When they listened, like I said, not all the crowd responded, but there was some of the crowd who heard something that their hearts leapt toward it. Right, we see it a little bit later on in verse 41. So those who received his word. See, that's what faith does. That's how you know faith is present. There's receptors to God's word. So when I believe and God's word comes to me, I, I receive God's word. So these... What was received in them was, was what Peter referred to as these promises. For this promise is for you and for your children. Promises are things that we believe. We believe them by faith. I make a promise to you. Well, I believe you. God has made a promise to us. Okay, well, I believe him. And they receive those promises into their life. So faith is awakened. But I, I want to take faith out of this sort of weak, mamby-pamby category that it can get itself tangled up in. You know, we're people of faith, and, and okay, what does that mean? Well, you got people over here doing bizarre stuff, people over here don't have a time of day for God, people over here who practice this, and people, but they're all people of faith. I'm not sure that's a healthy term then, right? I don't think these just, these went from being people on the street to people of faith, whatever that means. No, it meant something. It meant something radical in their lives. It meant for them what I think faith in the Bible is meant to describe as, as a transfer of hope into God. It's taking the hope that you have for your future, for your rightness with God, for the future of your life upon this earth and for your eternity and transferring it to God. I think that's what is being described here. Remember Psalm 78? says that he, speaking of God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Right? God wrote some stuff down, made some promises, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Why? 
so that they should set their hope in God. Why does, why does God make these promises? Why does God stand up and promise people some incredible things? Those promises are hooks. They're hooks for people who have set their hope elsewhere to take their hope and transfer it from those things and transfer it to God. God makes these promises. They're real life promises. He'll care for you. He'll provide for your needs. He'll raise you from the dead. He'll give you an eternal home. He'll forgive your sins. He'll remove the guilt from you. These are all promises from God. And if you think them through, they're very appealing promises, aren't they? Even if you're not real theologically savvy, how many guys would like to be released from a sense of guilt in your life? Hey, I'm good with that. Can I buy that out in the foyer somewhere? Well, but you can have it. God will give it to you. God will give you release from your sins, right? So there's this hook that God puts out there. The promises all over the Bible, and then God uses them to hook us to take wherever I put my hope, right? Well, how do you get released from guilt in this world? I don't know. Try and make up from past wrongs. Donate enough money to charities. Create some philanthropic pursuit that gives yourself a better sense of feeling about yourself given all the jerky things you did wrong. All the people standing in line who curse you over here, but these guys applaud you. You hope the applause drowns out the curse. Is that how we go through life and deal with stuff like guilt? God says, hey, how about you transfer your hope that that's going to be your remedy in life to me. You put your hope in me. That's what faith is about. Tim Keller says, what is an idol? He says, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, right? That's the stuff hope is made of right there. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. You're you're messing with the world of hope right there. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. All right, listen, you want to you test? You want to do an autopsy on your faith? What stuff is in your life right now that's messing with you that way? If you have that, then you're going to feel one way about life. But if you don't have that, and you've got to figure out how to do life without that, or without that person, or that thing, or that reward in your life, if you don't have that, you're just, you're hard-pressed to get up in the morning and feel good about anything tomorrow. Okay, that thing is where you've put your hope. It's where your faith is truly found. And God says, you've transferred your hope from me to something else. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All right, so you have a practice of sin being contrasted with Purity. You have a pure life or you have a life that practices sin. What makes the difference? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies his life. This is the same thing Paul was talking about when he was revisiting. Shall we continue to sin? Shall we continue to practice sin? Uh, Wait a minute. How could you do that if you've died with Christ? Secondly, how could you do that if you transferred your hope 
and your faith in Christ, the effect of that is to purify your life. Did you want to know what creates a life of impurity? If you're looking around your life and you're saying, yeah, I've got some impurity issues. There's some sin practices going on. There's some compromise going on in my life. Well, in whatever places that that's happening, you have not transferred your hope to Christ. You've kept it somewhere else. If your hope is in some form of pleasure, that if I have this in my life, the pleasure will be so rewarding that I must have that. That's critical and vital to my goodness. Well, that thing's become an idol in your life. It's the place where you've placed your hope. And now you're going to negotiate with God. Now now you're going to compromise. Now purity is going to begin to diminish in your life as long as that's there. But if you transferred your hope in Christ... Well, then purity begins to happen because purity is about the kingdom of God. Purity is about righteousness. If my hope is in the righteousness of Christ, who he is, being my God for my future and my life, well, then that's going to result in purity in my life. If you have any question as to why there's impurity in your life, it's because there's a failure to transfer your hope to Christ. You're holding out some kind of faith benefit in that thing and you won't let go of it because you need that. It's a source of good and reward in your life. And God says, your faith needs to be in me completely. You need to repent of those kinds of things and put your faith completely in me. All right, so we have repentance, we have faith. If we look a little further, we find obedience. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He gives a command. You're coming to faith in Christ, be baptized. This wasn't, hey, you're coming to faith in Christ, Uh, listen, whatever first steps you'd like to be about. No, it's repent. Well, I don't know if I really feel like you know, totally just selling this whole thing out to God. You know, th- there's no options given here. There's not like plan A and plan B. It's a command by the revelation of God's word. Repent and be baptized. Don't negotiate with God. Don't do, well, I don't know if I need to, well, because, you know, I'll get around to that. It's repent and be baptized. And guess what they did? Well, they repented and they were baptized. Right? Those who received his word were baptized. Those who believed and walked in repentance, were obedient. Listen, obedience is a word that we're, we're just not wanting to use it a whole lot today in the Christian world. The call, the mandate of God on our lives for us to obey him. It's just not attractive. It's not what people want to preach from the pulpit. It's not what people want to hear in churches. Do you remember this description from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, verse 5? This is what he said his ministry was about. Through whom we have received, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. God is after obedience. Obedience matters to God. Your response to God should contain obedience. Wayne Grudem says, I I think that evangelicals today are generally afraid 
of teaching about pleasing God by obedience for fear of sounding as if they disagree with justification by faith alone. Right? Don't want to nick the nerve. But when the need to please God by obedience is neglected, we have millions of Christians in our churches who fail to see the importance of obedience to God in their daily lives. I think that's an important consideration for the church today. Are any of us here today neglecting daily obedience? Just a sense of just obey. You know God wants you to do something a certain way. Just obey him. Don't complicate the matter. Don't bring up all the challenges to it and my past and the way I was treated and what other people did wrong. And we make this case. As to why obedience for me, you understand, in this moment, it's going to be so off the charts hard that, can I just, listen, I'm not saying I'm never going to obey. I just want to press the pause button. Listen, this is conversion. This is the moment of conversion. And these people are obeying God. That's normal. It's not normal for us to be Christians and not obey God. That's not normal. That that might be a new normal, but our new normal needs a, a new normal. It needs this kind of a normal. To obey means to comply with or follow the commands, restrictions, wishes, or instructions of. Right? God is instructing you. God is restricting you. I, mean, I can't sugarcoat this. God comes along and makes claims on your time. God comes along and makes claims on your attitude toward life, toward how long this is taking, toward how that person responded, toward whether or not I want to walk one more step with this individual. God comes along and makes claims on all that. And he restricts your heart. And he paints boundaries. And he calls you to love in sacrificial ways. And he calls you to be forbearing. Well, I don't want to forbear. Do you have any idea how long I've been forbearing? And we make a case. We make a case for what? For disobedience. (laughs) Almost as though God is wrong to make claims on my life to do something extraordinary. Listen, I just want to... God, I just want to be an ordinary person. Well, well, lost people have got that covered. God's calling you to extraordinary. God's calling you to love each other, as I've said before, in mind-blowing ways. And when he calls you to do it, he doesn't present it like it's, well, you got plan A and you got plan B. He just calls us to obedience. That's normal in the Christian life. 1 John 3, verse 5 says, you know... That he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one. Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because conversion is something that happens to you. You will receive the Holy Spirit, and the seed of the Spirit will be born in you, and a new power will operate in you. So this whole conversation about me continuing to practice and pursue sin doesn't make sense. It's not normal to conversion. 
because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A work of God on the inside, trafficking in places like amazing love. Listen, love is, is not a friendly word and obedience an unfriendly word. God uses them in the same sentence. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. For God, these things get along with each other. They're not hostile. They're, they're, a, they're a working out of the love that God has worked into our hearts toward him, toward his glory. Right? We keep reading from these guys a little further here. Our autopsy, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. These people who were wandering on the streets of Jerusalem, these 3,000 people minding their own business until the power of God fell and the word of God was preached and they were pierced to the heart, faith flooded their hearts, they wanted what they heard, they responded in faith, what must we do? They repented, they believed, and they began to devote themselves to something. There was a desire in their hearts, a pursuit, a passion. The word there that's given in Scripture for devote means to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty, to keep doing something even though it's hard. They devoted themselves to something. No one says this was easy for them. It's not easy for us, is it? But no one said it was easy for them either. Yet there was something in them that caused them to be devoted to this. Well, God's all over the place working on the inside to make this kind of stuff part of who we are. Philippians 2.13, it's God who's at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word. They devoted themselves to the word because there was a longing in their hearts that conversion had placed in their hearts to pursue God's word. Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right? It's training us. Conversion did something to us. It's now working on us to give us desires for these very things. Verse 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Right? The same work of faith, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no one is a Christian who has not been aware of this disturbing presence of something happening. The great God who made us at the beginning is reforming us, doing something in us and upon us, making something of us. And what he does, of course, is to produce a complete change. But I want to show you that God does not merely produce a change in us with respect to our views of the Lord Jesus Christ. When men and women become Christians, their whole condition is changed. And they are moved from one position to another. Right? Everything we're reading about in the lives of these people here in this passage is not merely, oh, well, Peter, according to you, we've made a terrible mistake in misunderstanding who Jesus Christ is. Well, I guess we'll just change our opinion about him. 
Okay, so he's not just this noisemaker from Nazareth, uh, raising up a bunch of religious followers, safe to kill him. All right, so he's really God come in the flesh. All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll adjust that in the literature. Thank you for that revelation. That's not their response. They are pierced to the heart. They are crying out to respond to God. Their heart is eager to repent, to put their faith and their hope in the person of Jesus Christ and to obey him and to begin to be devoted to something that's totally different than what they were devoted to just days before. Suddenly their life is transformed by this work of conversion in their life. Do you understand what a radical thing this is? What you have in Jerusalem on this day, 3,000 people from all over the place, some of them maybe from Jerusalem, many of them from other places, have had such an encounter with God that redefines their life that they came in town for Jazz Fest weekend. (laughs) Do you understand? That's what's going on here. Pentecost is kind of like Jazz Fest weekend in Jerusalem. Bunch of people flew into town that weekend where, I don't know, in between tents going from one thing to another and somebody's preaching the gospel and the power of God falls and they are pierced to the heart. Guess what? Show over. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to be using my airline ticket to go home. Whatever has happened to me is so profound, I'm staying in Jerusalem. I'm not going home. Do you understand much of what happens in the coming chapters in Acts is the result of this dilemma? The extraordinary care. Why were they selling their possessions and giving to anyone who had need? Because thousands of them had no place to stay. They packed for the weekend. They had no clothing. They didn't have extra stuff with them. Who's going to feed these guys? We didn't bring enough money to live here. All of a sudden, the body of Christ, these believers, they're selling stuff. And they're giving money to this person and to that family who has need. And they're putting this one up in this hotel. And they're, they're buying stuff for this one who has need. Where did all that stuff come from? Where did all this amazing generosity that flowed out of their hearts? Because there was a great need. Because God had so radically affected these people that their life was being redefined right before their eyes. And all those who were converted, their lives were being redefined. All of a sudden, whatever these possessions were, I don't know, maybe some, some dude had a cool chariot. I don't know. Says, hey, sell my chariot, Corvette chariot, baby. I'll I'll make you a good deal on it. And then all of a sudden, this this image that he had to own this, drive this chariot, be this ultimate, he's going to sell that thing because suddenly he has transferred his hope. And something else matters more than anything else in their lives. I mean, you're right. A few chapters from now, we're going to encounter a guy named Ananias and Sapphira who sell their home. People turn around and they sold their homes. What a a revaluing that took place in their lives. That's normal conversion. You you and I have been around conversion. Many of us have experienced conversion. We've been raised in a setting where there's some form of conversion on display. Listen, I think our expectation of conversion needs a severe new normal upgrade. Because now so many folks are just trying to figure out how to fit a little bit more God information into their life. Well, you got some God information for me? Oh, that's kind of new. Yeah. Maybe I'll bump in and out of church, dude, every once in a while. Got some kind of weird meeting I could come to that doesn't feel like this boring read the Bible kind of thing? 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. How many just are eager to go attend a prayer meeting after you get converted, huh? Prayer meeting, how long is that anyway? Because, man, i got stuff to do today. You know, i got a lot of things going on. So, really, you've been converted? Oh, yeah, you know, 1980-something or whatever. Uh, yeah. You understand that, that I'm reading Acts chapter 2. If I'm beamed in from another planet and I'm bumping into Christians today, I'm reading Acts chapter 2, I'm wondering, you really been converted? You really? Because I don't know, I saw conversion here, and when you do the autopsy, it's got all kinds of rich stuff all in it. It's overwhelming. It overwhelms the people here. Yet today, conversion looks like an encounter with Jesus was a speed bump on a highway. Maybe God wants a new normal for us in conversion. Let's, let's stand up together. Lord, thank you that these words on these pages exist to inform us, to shape us, to influence us, to move us from wherever we may be living to the place where you have wanted to call us. Lord, this morning, as on these pages, you are present with us. Your spirit is near to us. Lord, this morning, as on these pages, you are working in the hearts of men and women, compelling them, bringing them to their own place of what must I do? Lord, some this morning are here convicted, aware that their approach to you has misplaced you. Lord, aware that you're, you're not much of a player in the realities of their lives. God, I pray right now, right now, Lord, would you interrupt their jazz fest weekend. Wherever they were headed, whatever things were going on, whatever mattered this week, this month, Lord, would you suddenly stand before them as the God whose purpose in this world has been to reconcile them to himself. The God who sent his son to break down barriers, to pierce hearts, and to cause a people who lived independent of God to suddenly now turn to God in total dependence on him. Lord, you're doing that. You did that on these pages, these 3,000 people. But you're still doing that, Lord. You're still doing it today. You're doing it here this morning. Listen, I want you to be aware if you're here listening this morning and your heart has been affected by God, you are convicted. You are aware that your life is not where it should be. You're being disturbed by staying where you have been in your life. Well, that's, that's what God did to these people so that they turned and asked, what do I do? What do I do to make it different? Something's not right in my life. 
God's not been in the right place in my life. What do I do? Well, here's what they did. And here's what we're called to do. Repent. Turn to God. Not just because your life hurts, although he loves you and he cares that it hurts. But turn to God because you've stolen this life from God. It was never meant to be yours to the exclusion of him. It was meant to be yours for glorifying him, for living with him and loving him and knowing him every day of your life. If it hasn't been about that, this morning, repent and turn to God. Say, God, this morning, I want to give my life back to you. I recognize you sent your son to die in my place, to forgive me of my sins, to restore me to you. This morning, Lord, restore me. I receive that from you. I receive your forgiveness. I receive restoration. I receive you into my life. Lord, I receive you to be the reason for my life, my hope. God, this morning I'm transferring my hope from wherever it's been. I'm transferring it to you put my hope in you, Jesus, to give me life now and to give me life for all eternity. This morning is the morning. My life is now yours. Listen, if you're here this morning, I want to ask you, if you just prayed that prayer, maybe you've never done that before, would you just lift your hand? Let me see your hand. Raise your hand. If you just prayed that prayer, not done that before, I see a number of you guys. Anybody else? Raise it away because I want to make sure and see who to pray for here. This morning, a few of you all. all right, let, me, let me give you an invitation. If this morning something like that's happened in your life, this isn't the streets of Jerusalem. I don't know that God's calling you to never go back home. <laughs> but God's calling you to make a huge step of trust in him. And I'd like to ask some folks to just pray with you that you might in days ahead find yourself devoted to God's word and to prayer and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, this work of conversion in your life. So, so if you just prayed that prayer, could I ask you just to come forward and just stand right up here to my right and I'm just going to have a couple of folks come pray with you that what God has begun this morning in your life is going to catch fire. Days ahead are going to be filled a new normal for you. You guys who prayed, I know I'm asking you to do something that maybe you didn't sign on for coming to church and raising your hand, walking forward. Listen, it's it's not as bad as what happened here in Acts 2, right? You do get to go home. People don't have to sell their possessions to pay for you to have a meal tonight. Uh, But God wants to meet you. Give God a chance. Listen, part of the reason why we don't encounter God is because we're just too timid to receive from God. Hey, be bold to receive from God. Maybe you didn't raise your hand just right right now. But in your heart, you're saying, hey, dude, I I prayed that prayer. I did pray that prayer because I I need God to start his work in my life. I I need to return my life to God and transfer my hope to him completely. Anybody else? Folks, appreciate that. 
let's close in prayer and then let Eric close us in song. Father, thank you for this amazing place of new beginning in our lives. Thank you for when you come to us with such power and influence that our lives get redefined. Lord, rescue us from a small version and vision of who you are and a small understanding of what conversion is. Lord, these people, our our autopsy on conversion informs us otherwise. Lord, an amazing thing has been done to us. Oh God, now begin to work through us for the sake of your glory. Give us a new normal in our conversion. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.